Hello, everyone, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond the Grid Revisited. I'm Tom Clarkson, and I'm back with another oldie but goldie conversation from our back catalogue to whet your appetites for the return of both the Formula One season and another series of our podcast. This week, we're looking back on a conversation with a man who is currently one of the biggest names in Formula One. Though when we spoke to him in October 2018, he was still very much the promising up-and-comer who'd only given us a tantalising glance of what was to come. I'm talking about Charles Leclerc, now a Ferrari star, but back then a member of the Prancing Horses Driver Academy who'd just been handed a dream race drive for the Scuderia after impressing in his first season of Formula One with Alfa Romeo Sauber. What struck me immediately in this chat was the confidence and poise of Leclerc. Not only was he clearly so undaunted by the task ahead of him in racing for Formula One's most famous team, but he was able to speak so reflectively and poignantly on the loss that he'd suffered up to that point in his life, including the tragic passing of his close friend Jules Bianchi in 2015 and his father Hervé during his incredible run to the Formula 2 title in 2017. So whether you've heard this conversation before or not, please sit back and enjoy it. Charles is open and illuminating, and it's clear to see why he's gone on to become the superstar that he is today. Well, Charles, welcome to Beyond the Grid. Everything's looking pretty rosy, I would say, for you right now. And I'm not talking about this meeting room at Sauber HQ in Hinville. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah, it, it is definitely a, a special part of my career at the moment. Um, obviously, I've been announced as the as the 2019 uh, Ferrari uh, F1 driver, so it is something extremely special that I've always dreamed about. Uh, since child, I've always dreamed of being, first of all, in Formula One, and 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 to be uh, now announced as as a Ferrari driver is is something uh, extremely special. What would the little boy growing up in Monaco, did he did he genuinely believe this was a realistic goal for you? Or was it always just a dream and that you actually thought you were going to end up being an accountant or uh, whatever else? <laughs> uh, I don't think I ever imagined me as a, as a Ferrari driver. Uh, since I first started karting, it was clear in my head that I wanted to uh, to be a driver as a job, if you can call that a job, because at the end it, it's what I, I, I enjoy doing every day. Um, but yeah, imagining me uh, as a Ferrari driver in Formula One, this this never uh, crossed my mind. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing opportunity for me. I was already extremely grateful uh, to everyone that helped me and to uh, yeah to, to be a Formula One driver. But now it's uh, it's going uh, uh, to another level. Charles, was there ever a plan B? I'm fascinated, not just by Formula One drivers, but sports people that in their minds, there never seemed to be a plan B. What happens if this doesn't work out? Did it ever cross your mind that you wouldn't make it? Yes, um, there was a plan B in my, in my situation until probably... GP3. After that, there was no really, no really, <laughs> no really plan B anymore. Uh, but until GP3, I was still uh, continuing my um, my studies. Uh, I really liked uh, the engineered part of, of Formula One also. So I I really had a plan B that in case I will not be a, dri a racing driver, I would like to be a an engineer 
for for a racing driver actually. So uh, so yeah, this was this was my plan B in case um, it didn't work out. And I guess though that growing up in Monaco, the Monaco Grand Prix, you were seeing F1 drivers around town the whole time. So is that what sort of began your interest in in racing? Strangely, not really. Um, I started. I, I I tried karting for the first time extremely young because I was only three and a half. Hang on, uh, three yes, and I'm a half. Most people can't ride a bike <laughs> when they're three and a half. Yeah, I was I was I was very very young. Uh, it was it, it's good memories, but uh, but it was quite random to be honest. I, I didn't want to go to school that day, or I mean I don't know how you call it. It's not probably. It's not. It's not called school actually at this age, but um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I didn't want to go there, um, so I, 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 I told my father that I was ill, which which was absolutely not the case. But but he believed it. Uh, fortunately for me, and uh, and he was going to see his best friend, Philippe Bianchi, the the father of of Jules, who owned a racetrack in uh, in Brignoles, and I I tried karting there for the first time and and felt in love straight away with the with the sport and that's how I got involved in racing but before that actually I was not really interesting in 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 it so you didn't grow up uh, watching I'm trying to you were born in 1997 weren't you so that sort of, I suppose it was Schumacher was it is that who was on the TV back then it was wasn't it yeah probably well I I, I after that, after three and a half years, then I, I, I became extremely passionate about motorsport and then I started to follow it. So it's anyway extremely early. But uh, but before the age of three and a half, if I can say, I was not following it closely. But did you see guys kicking around? Like, would you go shopping with your mum and see, I don't know, Coulthard in, in the supermarket or, or who else was? There were, in fact, at that era, there was something like 12 F1 drivers living in Monaco at the time. Well, my mum is, is, uh, is the haircut of, of David. Uh, David Coulthard's hairdresser. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. Was she responsible for the ginger that D- DC <laughs> turned up in about 1996 with ginger hair? Was that your mum? Uh, well, probably. I don't know. You, you probably <laughs> shall ask him, but for sure it was his choice, not, not my mum's choice. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah. Um, I think the first driver that I've seen in Monaco, and it was quite late. It was Daniel Ricciardo uh, at the supermarket just in front of my house. So it was uh, it was quite late on. That was that was quite long. You were well and truly on your way by then, weren't you? Yeah, I, I was probably in GP3. So um, yeah, I remember seeing him in the in the supermarket, and obviously he didn't know me, but I, I knew him, and uh, and yeah, I was just dreaming of of one day uh, joining him in Formula One. So you are living the dream, but just that Plan B you mentioned earlier until you got to GP3. What else were you good at? You say you at school you were interested in sort of engineering type yeah. stuff. Were you, are you good at any other sports? Just Hmm. I think I think racing is really uh, <laughs> the road I had to follow. Uh, I, I I don't think I was bad at school. I I was just a bit lazy, uh, as most other people are for school. But yeah, I I, I had quite good um, um, good marks. Do, do you good call marks, them? Yeah. yeah, good marks at school. Um, but yeah, racing good was reports. the only thing. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but racing was the only thing that that was interesting me, and uh, and I was training every day to be the best racing the best racing um, uh, driver possible so uh, so yeah I didn't really spend much time at getting better at anything else so you started karting at the age of three and a half yeah and 
you didn't really bump into F1 drivers around town. So then the passion for racing, and it's really so evident just talking to you. It's sort of contagious, this passion you have for it. Where did it come from? Was it your dad? My dad was a racing driver. Um, but again, before that I first tried karting, he didn't really push me into the sport or speak to me about it. Again, I was extremely young, but uh, but yeah, before that, uh, he he wasn't doing anything for me to get involved with the sport. But then once I tried it, then I obviously uh, became very passionate, and and uh, he was he was the happiest of all, uh, seeing uh, myself continue a little bit what he had done uh, for part of his life, which was uh, which was driving. He did a bit of F3, is that right? Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also, I think, tested in Formula 1 at one point, but, but then didn't have the, the financial support to continue. So this is the family business for you? Exactly. And did you find the whole karting experience, it's something that Jensen Button has talked a lot about in his time, the bonding experience of going racing with his dad. It was something that Jensen and... Uh, John, his father, did, and it's, he's got such fond memories of that time. And is it the same for you? Yes, I think it is for for most of the drivers. The the karting days are just, uh, yeah, it's probably up. They are probably the best memories I have from from racing because uh, everything is so simple and and everybody's friends. Everyone is is a friend of each other. So it, it's a it's a great time and. And yeah, there's the, the competition is also extremely high. It's also very professional, but uh, but yeah, everyone is having fun, and it's a bit less serious than than the car racing, which is good to see. And I think these are the years where I have where, where I've had the, the most fun in my career. And was Dad the kind of guy that would stand by a corner and say, "Break a bit later, turn in a bit earlier"? Was he giving you that kind of advice? Yes, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I can say it, but probably if you speak to some team managers, uh, you, you will understand better. But I think he was extremely discreet uh, in a way where he will never come uh, in the owning when I'm when I'm working with my engineers, and he will kind of give me a bit of of the autonomy that uh, that a driver needs, and that has helped me massively for the future also. Um, so yes, he was he was analyzing everything, uh, but always uh, coming at the right time when I was a bit uh, uh, yeah when I finished work he will come and and suggest some things. Um, but he was not uh, he was not coming in the middle of the team and doing a mess uh, if I did <laughs> if I did a, if I if I didn't do the good job. So that was good. Some people listening to this may not be aware that you you lost your dad midway through last year. What do you miss most about him? Ah, uh, everything. To be honest, uh, I mean, uh, yeah. As a as a father, you, you you he 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 helped me massively in my career, uh, but not only. Uh, as I said, he he was he was my father, and and uh, at home he helped me massively with lots of things. Um, and without him, I would have never managed to to come until until Formula One. So uh, yeah, I miss him as a father. Um, I lost my dad two months ago, and when I say what do you miss about it, I, for me, I'm, I miss I miss my dad's voice. That's the thing I miss the most. And forget any advice or anything else. Just on the phone, having a quick chat. 
Yeah. Is there is there one thing like that for you that you feel the same way? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And also, I mean, at the end of every test or every days where I was racing, he would always call and say, oh, "Okay, so how how did it go?" And he was my biggest supporter. And obviously, you 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 miss this. Uh, but apart from the racing side, also uh, just him as a person, he was an amazing uh, a person with an amazing personality, and uh, that made me the guy that I am now, and also the the driver that I am now. And uh, yeah, I, 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 he has a lot of credits in, into uh, what I achieve and, and what I will achieve. And then there was that race, it was Baku last year, you were racing in Formula 2, going brilliantly. Uh, God, what a season that was, but we'll come on to that. But it was, it was two days after Dad had, um, had died, um, and my God, you were good. Yeah, it was in uh, it was in Baku. Uh, I remember I, I had to leave on the Tuesday, I think, but uh, but unfortunately he uh, he passed away that day. So uh, so I, I I canceled the flight and took the day the day after. Um, and it, it was a very tough time. I remember going to the race and and on the way to the race and asking myself whether uh, how I would perform in a weekend like this because obviously my mind was not at all on the on the race uh, and it was a very difficult situation but uh, overall I mean at the end I've asked myself what what, what would have he wanted uh, if he was still there and, and the answer came up uh, very quickly um, yeah, he, he he would have wanted me to win this race. So very quickly, I, I just focused on the race. Obviously, still having him in my mind, but trying to focus on the race uh, at the maximum possible uh, to just try and, and give him the best result possible to honor him the way he deserved. And um, and yeah, and I'm extremely happy that uh, that I've managed to do that. I mean, we've had a pole position, race one win race to win on track but unfortunately uh, we got a 10 seconds penalty that placed us on, on the second place but anyway it was probably the greatest weekend, weekend in terms of performance of the year which was uh, yeah, which was unbelievable uh, to be honest considering the situation of the whole week. How did you have the mental capacity to deal with everything? Are, we, are you able to just compartmentalise everything does that help you in your everyday life as a Formula One driver generally, or was it just something you were able to do that weekend? Uh, um, I, uh, first of all, I think that when I first started racing, I think my weak point was was my mental strength. Uh, I think I was quite weak mentally, very emotional, and that was not great for me. And since the beginning, I've... I felt that it was my, my weakness and I started to work on it with Formula Medicine first and then later in the years with the Ferrari Drivers Academy that have also some uh, mental trainers for uh, different types of situations. Uh, definitely, they, they don't train you and, and, and there will ne never be any uh, trainings to, um, yeah, to, to, to react better in a situation like, like losing a, a parent. But... Um, but yeah, I, was, I definitely became a lot stronger uh, mentally. First, thanks of that. Uh, then there has been also quite a big loss, which was the one of, of, of Jules for me. Uh, that was extremely hard to take, but that then, uh, because of this whole situation, made me also stronger mentally. And, uh, and then when my father passed away, it was also extremely difficult, but 
somehow with all the work that I've done for racing, especially it has helped me also pers- in a, in a personal situation like this. Um, and and yeah, I think now, uh, if you ask me now, what is your biggest uh, quality is probably my mental strength, which which has became from from a weakness to 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 my biggest uh, strength. So. Uh, uh, yeah, it was it was definitely a very difficult weekend, but I I could manage to uh, uh, to to fully focus on the race once I was in the car. If you combine the deaths of your father and, and Jules Bianchi, um, you're one tough cookie. I don't think mental <laughs> <laughs> mental toughness is an issue if you don't mind. But uh, so this is Doctor uh, Ceccarelli, isn't it? Down did you say Formula Medicine? Ceccarelli? Yeah, Formula yeah. Medicine. Yeah, uh, Ricardo Ceccarelli. I I, I know Ricardo. Um, you say you're weak mentally as I say I find that difficult to believe do you mean when you say emotional is it sort of getting upset if if someone overtakes you or is it sort of more fundamental than that or was it more fundamental than that I think I was and I and I still am extremely uh, determined in in the results I wanted to achieve and I was extremely harsh on myself uh, which I still am um but yeah I will I will get angry easily uh if I was second after an amazing race i will be extremely angry uh, just because i am second and for me second was uh, to be first of the of the last uh, that's that's what i've uh, said all the time and so I, I was never happy and and then also probably with the age and the maturity that is that is coming i've uh, i've learned to also enjoy when you are doing a good job and uh, and yeah, before I, I was not realizing when I was doing a good job, I was only looking the results. Uh, and if I will do second with an amazing race, then I will just not be happy. This has changed. And also, uh, yeah, I was I was very determined, which I still am. But I was, uh, um, yeah, pu- putting too much pressure on myself, and um, and I was being just too harsh on myself, which is which is not the case anymore. Has Nicholas Todd, your manager, has he helped you in that respect as well, or is it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, he has also at first pushed me to go to formula medicine, so it's also thanks to him if I've started to to train mentally um, and and also physically because it pushed me, it pushed my physical level uh, to, to to another level also. So uh, I know Nicholas can push. Nicholas can push. <laughs> I, I've worked with Nicholas in the past. He can push. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was. Uh, yeah, it has. I think it has been a great push for my career to be working with Nicholas at one point. Obviously, having a manager that is taking care about all the um, uh, all the contracts and uh, uh, to try and find the fundings. It's it's a big plus for a driver because at the end, my job was was just to focus on driving, and he will do all the other things where. My father or, or I was were not an expert of, so uh, it was a huge help. Do you feel there's been a just while we're talking about Nicola Todd? Is there been a passing of the baton, if you like, because um, he worked with Jules Bianchi, didn't he? Yes. And so now, do you feel you're almost finishing the work that Jules had started with Nicola? In a, at any level, I mean, I'm getting, kind of, uh, especially I'm with quite profound here, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, especially with with uh, the seat that all uh, occupy next year. Obviously, I think Jules deserved it more than anybody else uh, to be in that uh, in that red seat. So, uh, how how close does Jules get to to Ferrari? Oh, I mean, pff, I think there was know. a time where we thought he was going to. Yeah, I, th- I think he was doing 
he had proved himself and uh, I think it was just a matter of time uh, of him being in that seat so he definitely deserved it more than anybody else and um, and me now going to to this team I'll just try and and have the the, the most success possible um, to just thank him for for everything he has done for me and uh, yeah I'll, I'll take it a bit like like his success also is it true that Jules was your godfather yes it is <laughs> but like, he's what help me is he eight years older than you yes he is so what kind of worldly advice i'm trying to think of people who are eight years older than me and i'm not sure any of my mates would be able to give me much worldly advice <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a godfather was well he? Or was he, it more of a just a friend thing no but, well he um my father and, and his father were best friends and our both of our families are extremely close and and still now um and yeah well uh Jules was already racing at that time and uh, and my father had a close relationship to racing uh so thought that Jules was the was the right person uh, and and he gave me uh, a lot of advices through through the year um the years um, oh just in terms of what racing advice how to set up the go-kart how to that kind of advice or not really about the the, the setups, but more Girls? about the, the, but <laughs> also, <laughs> but uh, but more about the um, more about the driving, uh, yeah, uh, driving I'll, style and exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. I remember him coming to my first international race uh, in the Winter Cup, uh, telling me to be a bit more aggressive. And at the uh, at the session just after, I would have sm- I smashed a, a guy just in front. He was like, "Oh, not not that aggressive." <laughs> but but it's, it's it's good memories and. Uh, um, and yeah, I've had I've had some very good times with him. Did his accident at Suzuka in 2014 change your attitude to racing in any way? No, no, because I, I mean, when you are doing this sport, you you know uh, you know that this is a, a dangerous sport, and uh, and and I, I knew it. Uh, obviously, it was a. I remember at that time I was in Harris for the last round of the Formula Renault Championship, and um, and my father didn't tell me about it we, we it was like half an hour or one hour before my race and i i would learn it on the social medias but we didn't know at that time whether it was extremely bad or not and i, I hadn't seen the video or things like this and my father didn't want to talk to me about it so i just went in the car and um and race and after that i learned the news which was a uh, yeah a huge shock but uh but no it didn't change my approach to racing uh, as i said i we know the dangers of, of this sport. Um, How do you justify the danger in your your mind? It's difficult because I, I just never think about it. Uh, and as I've always said, the day I'll be scared about going into a car, or th- the day I'll think about the danger that I risk into a car, I'll probably stop racing because it's at that time that probably the performance will drop. Um, yeah, when once I'm in the car, I'm just thinking at how I can make this corner better. Uh, Have you ever been scared in a car? Never. A wet Monaco, a wet spa? No, never. Probably the only thing, and it's not even scared, but uh, you are surprised when, when you are jumping on the brakes and there are no brakes anymore, which is, uh, which is a bit happened? normal. Yes, in karting, more than in cars. In cars, it has never happened, but in, in karting, these, these things happen, happen sometimes. But 
yeah, you, you don't really feel the fear at the moment. Then obviously when you go out of the karting, you're like, oh, that, that was close. But uh, at that moment, you are just trying to do everything possible to try and avoid the wall. I remember Gerhard Berger telling me that when you're about to have an accident, and he had a massive one at Imola in, I think, 1989, and he just said everything slows down. You don't sort of see your whole life before your eyes, but just it feels, although everything happened in half a second, it feels seconds. But I don't know. Yeah, it feels a bit longer the, the time uh, the time you you get to the wall you, and you you just wait that uh, that the yeah. shock happens and and hope that uh, that everything will be okay. This amazing junior career saw you hugely successful in karting. Then uh, Formula Renault. Uh, am I right in thinking that Fortec was your only British team in your career? Uh, Richard Dutton. Yes, it was. It was. I mean. Do the Brits do anything different to the other teams on the in Central Europe? Or I remember being impressed. Um, what by the tea? <laughs> also, <laughs> but I don't. I'm not a big fan of tea. Uh, but uh, but yeah, just by by the overall um, work of the team and how pointy they were. They, they were uh, even only being in Formula Renault. I mean, it's a big category, but it's still the the bottom of, of car racing and uh, and I remember arriving in this team and everything was so pointy and they were looking at every little details to, to make you better and that was something that has impressed me a lot um, with, with, uh, with, with them. So then Formula 3 came and went second at Macau. Yes. Amazing racetrack. Wow. <laughs> You're sounding like Kimi Räikkönen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to get used to that. Uh, but uh, but yeah, the track is amazing. Yeah. I, I wish I could race again uh, one yeah in the in the future because uh, the rhythm of the track and and just the ambience of of the whole weekend. I think it's probably in Formula Three is the only weekend where we are. Uh, the category of the weekend like like formula 3 there is is uh, the, the one event yeah, yeah. exactly mm. which is something very special uh, especially when you are in this category where you are the where you are the support a little bit of the DTM uh, races so uh, yeah everything is around you and 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 the track is amazing uh, a lot of lots of people um, so yeah it's, it's definitely a very special event so then then you came onto the sort of F1 support program in 2016, GP3, then GP2, dominated both championships. And the reason I'm going through these categories year by year is one thing that really sticks out for me is that you never did two years in the same formula. You know, even Lewis Hamilton did two years of Formula 3. Um, was that a conscious decision or just what the opportunities just opened up every time in the next category? I think Nicolas and I had one target, which was to arrive in Formula One. But first of all, we didn't want to uh, step, you know, how to step too quickly, yeah. uh, and to uh, and to miss some uh, some uh, fundamental steps in my career. So uh, we really decided to do step by step, and starting with Formula Renault, then Formula Three, GP Three, and Formula Two. There was not a a real plan at the beginning when we wanted to arrive to Formula One. But one thing that was clear in our heads is that if I was not ready to move to the next category, we wouldn't do it and we'll just do another another season. 
after we realized that everything went pretty well in the first year in Formula Renault. I remember having some tough weekends at the beginning, but then I think I've I, I've learned from it and it went uh, very well and we finished best rookie of, of Formula Renault. Uh, and second in the overall championship, uh, and then so we decided we we didn't, yeah we, we we didn't find any benefits of doing another year, so we went to Formula Three, which was an amazing category with Van Amersfoort Racing. We've had an amazing uh, first part of the season, and then the second part was a bit uh, a bit harder, which was a, uh, to be honest, even today I, I don't really have the answers of of, of this, but. Uh, but overall, it was an amazing season, and and then we had an amazing opportunity also with with our Grand Prix, uh, that were the team to beat in in GP3. So we we couldn't really refuse. Uh, we won the title there, then Formula Two. We won the title there, and then and then I've had the the opportunity in Formula. There was yeah, only one place to go. Then has Formula One been the hardest challenge for you so far? Or yes. The biggest step. Mm. From karting to formula, also it's a big step because you 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 need to go back to zero with everything you have learned in terms of driving from karting. Um, uh, karting, I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I, I'm not saying karting is not uh, is not useful because it has learned me so many things. The approach to the weekend that are, I think, fundamental for a driver to go through. Um, but in terms of pure driving, it's it's very different to to car racing, and and so you really have to adapt uh, everything. But but after this step. Formula 2 to Formula 1 was definitely the big step the biggest step I've, I've, I've had in my career I mean there are so many systems and years after that years I think the, the, the difference is getting bigger and bigger because uh, uh, these cars are just crazy now these days. Is it the performance that's the biggest difference or is it all the systems around the car that is the biggest difference? Everything, <laughs> everything. Uh, the systems are very difficult to get used to uh, at first, and that's why actually I think the first three uh, races I was struggling that much. Not not because of getting used to the speed, but more about all the systems that you need to learn how they work. And um, what, what do you mean? How to extract the most from the car? Because I wanted to talk to you about those first three races because there was such a massive step when we went to Baku, wasn't there? Yeah. But but. Um, would you have got there with more pre-season testing or did it take a race weekend for you to understand where you were going wrong? I think I will have got there quicker with more with more testing. Uh, but the first weekend will have still been difficult because uh, there are so many other things apart from driving and systems, which is media and uh, and just the rhythm of a, of a Formula One weekend. It's just a lot more than Formula Two. In Formula Two, you just drive, and then go on a sofa, wait for the next session, <laughs> and and then drive again, uh, which was quite nice. But uh, but it's not like this anymore in Formula One. You have a lot of activities, and it takes a lot of energy. And you just need to uh, then, with the experience, to um, put your energy on the most important things. Um, and with well, all how of that, important for you is the media? How draining do you find? I hope you're not finding this too exhausting. But <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've had a very long day, so I'm already <laughs> exhausted. But uh, but I think it's extremely important. Uh, I mean, well, first of all, the the sport needs the media uh, to keep going. Um, it might be sometimes quite tiring because uh, there's a lot of people. But uh, at the end, also, I think my part of the dream when I was younger uh, was 
was also to be famous in a way when you when you see a formula one driver okay he's driving and that's what i always love doing but he's also admired for what he's doing and that was one thing that i've always wanted so is it it's fame or is it to be admired for what you're doing because i think they're two slightly different things because i think probably a little bit of both uh, probably a little bit of both which i'm not saying that now i'm uh, people are admiring me Uh, i'm not saying that but that was definitely Hopefully, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, being younger, I was I was looking up to to this and uh, and dreaming of of doing that. So media is part of the job, and uh, and at the end, I, I I I love this job. Has the reach of Formula One surprised you? Have you been to some obscure parts of the world where you thought, well, no one will recognise me here, and then suddenly someone comes up and goes, "That's Charles Leclerc." Is yeah, it? well, I, I remember first of all when I was doing karting and. And then there's like a little kid uh, coming and say, oh, can you do a picture with me? And I felt so proud of that uh, at first. And now you arrive in Formula One weekends and all through, through my career, you can you can feel that the support and the people that are looking up to you are, are more and more and more. And this is, yeah, well, this is incredible. I mean, it's the, it's, uh, as a driver, it feels, it feels crazy. And, and as a child, I never thought I would be in that position one day. So, uh, yeah, this is a, a dream come true. You're definitely in that position. But So those opening three, we've discussed the media, but just what was the car not doing that you now have it doing? At those opening three races, did I read somewhere, or in fact, did, or did you tell me was that was oversteer an issue yeah, early on? That's that's what I was going to start with. <laughs> the setup was oversteery, or you were being were you throwing the car around a bit too much? Or? The setup was, right. but uh, as I've said in the past, it's not the fault of the team, and it's me who was asking to the engineers that I wanted that car to drive because in the junior categories I was driving the cars like this with with more oversteer, and in Formula One. With the downforce days and the speed days, uh, you can still you can. I'm still driving with another steering car, but a lot less than than you used to in in uh, in, in in the in the yeah in the junior categories, and this took a bit uh, of adaptation and and I had to understand that it was driven just a different way. And in the first three races, I, I just threw. I just thought I was right, and that I wanted to keep this setup on the car, which was not the right thing to do. And then in Baku, because it was a city tracks, we we, we generally put a more industry balance for the driver to be a bit more comfortable with the walls, obviously. Uh, and there we we just found out that, uh, well, I found out that uh, that this was the balance of car that I that I needed. Oh, so it was the arrival of a street track that yeah. you made you sort of change the setup a little bit to more understeer. Okay, and Melbourne isn't considered a street track in the minds of drivers and engineers. Yeah, exactly. Because well, I mean, they are quite uh, the walls are quite far, so uh, you can uh, you can do some mistakes. Now, rivals. Every year of your career, you've had new rivals, new formulas. How much do you research your rivals in terms of? who they are, what they are, how they drive. Do you look at qualifying laps of Lewis Hamilton to see if there's anything that you can learn from them? Is there what kind of homework? We go back to school, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, what kind of homework does a racing driver do? To or be none, honest, or is it none? I don't. Actually, it, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I, I don't do any on my rivals. Uh, the only homeworks I do is on myself and try to uh, to improve every little bit of of myself. Uh, as I said before uh, earlier in the podcast, uh, I am extremely 
how do you say that self-criticism yeah yeah self-critical yeah self-critical um and i always uh yeah try to find uh, my my weak points and try to improve them and that is my main target and my main focus um uh, what about I, your teammate then do you do you look at marcus erickson's telemetry and go what's he doing that i'm not doing or, or do you not even look at that and just focus on yourself as well no no i wouldn't go that far i mean obviously as a teammate you have some very good data and oh, for sure i i i look at what he's doing sometimes and um, and i've learned a lot he has a lot of experience in formula one and yeah i've learned from marcus and i think you can always learn from from your teammates so i'm always looking at his data and and try to see what bits he's doing better uh, than me but not only at driving uh, also at the approach or how you give the feedback i remember i've learned a lot also by example from from seb vettel uh, being with the fairhouse academy i could hear the 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 briefings sometimes after a test or something like this and he's so pointy with every little details um and i was extremely impressed at that time i was quite young i still am quite young <laughs> but um, but i was even younger uh, i think it was in gp3 the first time and i was just impressed uh, like just he the he's work a, he, yeah he's just a, a machine you are, he's he's uh, he's driving the car and can tell you um, and 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 feels absolutely everything and this i've worked a lot after hearing him uh, saying this type of feedbacks and i think i got a lot better uh, by by working on this and trying to feel more things about the car i think seb works really hard a couple of times i've been very late leaving the paddock for whatever reason probably not work <laughs> but uh I've bumped into him a few times. I mean, properly late at night, sort of eleven, twelve o'clock sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's definitely an extremely hard worker. Yeah. And, um, it's not just natural talent. It seems to me if there's a common theme among all these multiple champions, they're all real hard workers. Yeah, this talent is, can maybe this is, get you there once, but to do it again and again and again in the way Schumacher did a lot. Well, I think the way I see the things is that with talent you can be extremely good and. If you don't have talent, but you work extremely hard, you can also be extremely good. But someone that will that has talent and and works extremely hard is is unbeatable. So, uh, or probably not unbeatable, but uh, but will be better than the other ones. Uh, and I think when when you see the top five or top six of of the of the championship, these are or even all the Formula One paddock actually all all the drivers in Formula One. I think they all work and they all have talent um, and and you always need to be the one that works that works the hardest um, and and yeah and and Seb is part of them so we're coming towards the end of year one for you how, how will you reflect on Sauber and what they did for you and the things you've learned well first of all I think it was a great um, a great year for me um, with Sauber I think we have both grown a lot we we started the year I remember uh, being probably one second of Q2 and now we are fighting to be in Q3 so if if not in Q3 sometimes so I think it really shows the progression that we've had uh, since the beginning of the season and that was the real target uh, we have to remember where was Sauber two years ago or, or even last year they were really struggling and now we have done a step a massive step with also the Alfa Romeo coming to to the team and that has been a huge boost for the team and yeah it's been a, it's been a great year and it's been an incredibly 
uh, interesting project for me. Uh, as a as a first year, I don't think I could have been in a better team because I've learned more than just driving and get used to these cars to develop a project and to try to improve a car at the beginning of the year. And that's what we did. Um, and that was very interesting to just see how a Formula One Teamworks, uh, so many people. It's crazy. I mean, in in Formula Two, you arrive, you you only have uh, three t uh, three uh, mechanics and uh, and two engineers, and then you arrive here in Sauber, where we are. I I don't even know how many we Hundreds, are. But, yeah, yeah. yeah, we are hundreds at least. So, uh, uh, yeah, it was an extremely interesting project. Will you miss working with? Fred, because Fred Vasser, team principal, should probably clarify that. <laughs> Will you miss Fred? Because you've done a lot with him. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Fred has always has been someone special for my career. Also, before Formula One, uh, in GP3, he was my team manager when uh, when we won. I mean, team principal. Sorry, or oh, the boss, the the, the big boss. <laughs> He's uh, getting more and more senior every yeah, time exactly. we think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he was the boss of of our yeah. Grand Prix, and we won the 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 title together and also in karting uh, I was racing for Art Grand Prix so yeah there's a, there's a connection between me and and Fred and and he has learned me massively I think uh, when you see the drivers that he've had in that he had in his team and uh, and the success they've had in uh, later on it's no coincidence uh, I think he's very good at um, at learning uh, the the very important things to a driver and and he has done that with with lots of drivers. So, I mean, you touched on it at the start of the podcast. Obviously, the Ferrari thing's coming and you're just radiating confidence and happiness. And But when did, when did you think it was a possibility, the Ferrari thing for 2019? When did it... Was it around Baku time, funnily enough, when you put that sixth place in, in, in race four? I'm sure that's when I first heard, ooh, Leclerc to Ferrari. Was it no? Or was that, that just media? Not, not media that, not that <laughs> trying soon. to create a story. <laughs> uh, I don't think I've ever believed I would be in Ferrari until they announced it to me properly and telling me you will you will be the 2019 Formula One driver for us. Um, I mean, Ferrari is such a big thing that you can't imagine to be one of the two drivers there is in this team it's something so it's a team that is so mythical and things like this that I just didn't even want to think about it that in case it didn't happen I will not be um, disappointed really you definitely tried not to think about it yeah all of this for sure I, I always try to focus on this season as yeah. much as possible and not think about next year um, obviously it was a relief when I when I knew what I was doing next year because also as a driver you always want to know as quickly as possible uh, what's the plan for the for for for, for the year uh, after because it's a uh, it's not the best situation uh, to not know what's going to happen the year after but um, but yeah, I didn't want to to think about it and to imagine myself in this position until it was actually done. How nervous are you? Not at all, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm, I'm not a nervous person. Obviously, there are there are tensions in this sport, and at the start, you are always um, yeah, there's adrenaline. But I, I would not say uh, that it's. Uh, uh, that it's nervosity. Um, but do you do you feel ready? I mean, even the likes of Senna and Schumacher didn't go straight in to championship potential championship winning mm. situations. It's always a difficult question uh, mm. 
to tell you whether I'm ready or not is something that I will not be able to say until I do my first race because I've never experienced a race with with uh, with uh, Ferrari. It's definitely something mythical. If you tell me, um, if you ask me about the pressure, I I think I can handle this. Um, because I have a mentality that I, I don't feel the pressure at all. Uh, I know lots of people say, yeah, but the pressure in Ferrari is on another level. But I, I, my mentality just allows me to take off all the pressure. How do you uh, do that? Or is that, do we go back to Ceccarelli and Formula Medicine? And- not really, because I, I don't really uh, take in consideration what people are expecting from me. The only thing I, I do is focusing on myself and try to uh, give the best um, possible performance on track. And I'm also very honest, if, I, if I'm not good enough next year, then I should be dropped uh, by Ferrari and this will be completely understandable for me. And this is how I see the things. If I'm good enough, then I, I deserve to stay there. If I'm not, then I deserve to be uh, left off. And I think this takes off a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure off my shoulders. It's a very mature attitude. But do you feel in your mind you have to beat Vettel? No. Uh, as I said, um, I, I will really focus on myself and try to do the best job possible. And yeah, uh, obviously, when you are in a team, the teammate is always the first person uh, you want to beat. But I also think that we need to find a compromise uh, with, as with every teammate, uh, because you are working together uh, for, to, to develop the car but you're also against each other because you want to finish in front of the championship. And this is a compromise to find. But I have no doubt that, that with a champion like Seb, it will be very easy to, to, to find this compromise. Do you get on? Yes. Yes, of course. I, I mean, Seb is a very nice guy and I think he gets on with basically everyone in the paddock. So it's not, uh, uh, it's not very difficult to, uh, to, uh, to get on with him. Now, there's a lot of speculation this year that Raikkonen hasn't been allowed to beat him and that Raikkonen's a number two. And Is there anything like that in your contract that's going to prevent you taking the fight to Vettel? Absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. And um, I know lots of people are, are thinking this and... Um, and me saying that will 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 won't change the the uh, what what people thinks, but uh, but as in every teams, you 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 start the year on an equal status, and then at one point, once a driver once one driver is fighting for the championship and the other is not, then I believe it's normal for the second driver to help the first one, which I'm ready to do in case I, I am the second driver at one point that I don't have my chances to win the championship, but. Uh, but yeah, uh, apart from that, I will. Uh, I, I, I don't think. Uh, I, I don't think I will go there uh, to do the second driver. Charles, I've got a bit of advice for you that Mark Webber gave us on this podcast. He said that when he was teammate Seb, he said there was one thing that Seb was really bad at, and I said, well, "What's that?" And he said, "Getting to the pit lane speed limiter." He said. Weber could beat him every time, every <laughs> single time. He said Seb was really conservative on the brakes for the pit lane speed. Limits. Okay. Anyway, you've heard well, it there first, right? Yeah. <laughs> thank you. That's according thank to Mark Webber. But look, final thing then. Um, thank you for your time. It's been such an enlightening chat. But what would it mean to you, Charles Leclerc, to stand on the top step of the podium wearing red? Wow, that would be unbelievable. Um... 
I think it's a bit more, it's a bit like the, the Ferrari signature. I can't imagine myself yet in that position uh, until uh, I will make it, if I make it one day. But, uh, but yeah, it's definitely the target for, for, for next year. Uh, and I prefer to have high targets than telling me, okay, uh, let's try to finish second or third. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not like this. So, um, yeah, this will be the target next year. Whether I will achieve it or not, I, I don't know. But it will be a realization of a dream again. Um, and, yeah, it will be a, a sign that I've, that I've worked hard enough. And uh, it will be a good um, uh, rec. rec- Recognizement, how do you say that? Recognition. Yeah, of exactly. Everything you've worked for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, look, best of luck with that. Thank you, Thank you very, very much. much for your time. Thank you. Great chat. So there you have it, folks. My conversation with Charles Leclerc from October 2018, in the days before he was a Ferrari superstar. If you enjoyed that, remember that we have loads of conversations for you to enjoy in our back catalogue, more than 100 and counting, and many of them are truly evergreen. Take my conversation with Gerhard Berger, for example. His life story is one that needs to be heard to be believed. And there's lots more from his 80s and 90s rivals too. Johnny Herbert, Damon Hill, Jean Alessi, take your pick. I'll be back next week with another great conversation from the archive. Until then, keep your comments coming in. We'd love to hear from you. And perhaps you could tell me who you want to hear from on Beyond the Grid this year. The hashtag is F1BeyondTheGrid and my handle is at TomClarksonF1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>